Welcome to Lipan Apocalypse, Episode 9, Unshared Sovereignty. I'm Brandon Seal. Lipan Apache Captain Chiquito knew why the rent was late. It didn't make it any more excusable, though. The Spanish governors of Texas understood that their, quote, principal responsibility, end quote, which was their own words to each other, was the payment of the annual rents owed to Texas Indians, most notably the Lipanes and the Comanches. And especially since American merchants had showed up in Louisiana after the Louisiana Purchase. Within a decade of the opening of a U.S. trading factory in Natchitoches, official trade topped $90,000 a year from the U.S., dwarfing the $4,000 in annual gifts that Spanish authorities distributed, which made it all the more inexcusable and risky for a Spanish governor to miss a rent payment. In some ways, though, Captain Chiquito might have known more about the forces conspiring to undermine Spanish rule in Texas than the governor or even the viceroy did. Because by 1810, the Lipanes had developed a multi-generational relationship with Tejanos in Texas, and in particular with the Menchaca family, dating back to 1693. In that year, they had started as enemies, when a young Spanish soldier named José de Urrutia went native and helped organize the Tejas in East Texas to fight against the Apaches. His son, Toribio, succeeded him as Presidio commander at San Antonio and started off his career slaving and provoking the Lipanes into terrible acts of violence, but then played a critical role in burying the hatchet in 1749. His nephew-in-law, Luis Antonio Menchaca, would succeed Toribio and become a quote-unquote bosom friend of the Lipanes during the years of Spanish-Lipan alliance. And it would then be Luis Antonio's son who was allowed to witness the solar eclipse ceremony in Picacs on Day's camp in 1788 in a previous episode. So that by the time that Luis Antonio's nephew, Miguel Menchaca, entered the scene, the Lipan-Menchaca bond ran deep. And that bond ran right through Captain Chiquito, who had, in effect, bound his people's future to San Antonio. Also known as the Nutria del Sol, or the Sun Otter Band, his people were more commonly referred to as the, quote, San Antonio Lipanes, end quote. And their friend, Miguel Menchaca, must have been sharing with them the terrible, wonderful things that were happening down in Mexico. A revolt by a holy man in Guanajuato, dreams of independence from Spain, of a Mexico for the Mexicans, of America for the little-a Americans. A first abortive revolt in San Antonio in 1811 that Menchaca was right in the middle of, followed then by escalating cycles of violence, and then a reversal of fortunes. The revolutionary priest ambushed in Coahuila on his way to San Antonio. The movement for an independent Mexico seemingly crushed, and Chiquito's friend, Miguel Menchaca, fleeing the state now. But like the migrations of the buffalo, like the planets, like the moon, like changing woman, like the story of their own first great migration out of the underworld, Captain Chiquito knew that history moved in cycles. So despite the momentary setbacks, he could tell that the Spanish weren't what they had been, and that their grip on Texas was slipping. His friend Miguel Menchaca must have assured him of as much as he was fleeing to the United States to go raise men and money for the cause. 
I mean, actually, as far as we know, Chiquito might have even helped Menchaca make these connections with the Anglo-Americans in Louisiana, with whom Chiquito had begun developing relationships as well. As early as 1806, Captain Chiquito had sent his son, Guelgas de Castro, to find a direct line of trade with these Anglos. It was a great test for his then 14-year-old son, whose name Cuelgas in Apache essentially means of the plains. Cuelga Inde, or people of the plains, was a term by which Lipanes sometimes referred to themselves or their predecessors, the plains Apaches. The Castro part is less clear. It may have honored a special relationship in the past with a Spanish officer or something. But there's clearly some idea that this young Lipan, Cuelgas de Castro, was carrying the legacy of his people in his name a legacy he could trace back to a grandfather who had helped settle the San Saba mission, and even further back, all the way to Boca Comida in Cabellos Colorados, whose people these San Antonio Lipanes had absorbed. But opening a trade channel with the Anglo-Americans in 1806 was really a coup, because it got the Lipanes access to guns, always that most sacred commodity on the plains and pre-industrial America's first mass-produced item. It was, in a sense, Huelgas de Castro's first alliance, that most sought-after object of Lipan energies, and as was becoming increasingly apparent, an alliance with the Anglo-Americans might soon prove to be a necessity. It also fit the logic of the Texas geopolitical checkerboard nicely. Captain Chiquito probably recognized that the Comanches and the Catawan-speaking Wichita and Texas now sat in much the same position as the Lipanes had sat a hundred years prior which is to say that their rivals were now sitting directly in the line of march of an aggressive settler nation pushing into their territory, and that the Anglo-Americans weren't like the French. They would never settle for just trade, nor were they like the Spanish. They would never settle for coexistence. There simply was no room for the Indian in the Anglo-American world. But because the Lipanes were one checker square removed from the Anglos, they made for natural allies against the Comanches and the Catawans sitting in between. Early Anglo accounts of dealing with the Lipanes confirmed this perception, describing them as uniquely, quote, shrewd, remarkably honest, and warmly attached to the Americans, end quote. In fact, the interests of Tejanos, Anglos, and Lipanes all seemed to be aligning here in 1812. Even the Comanches came around, thanks to the blunders of the Spanish Texas governor, who not only failed to make them their required rent payments, but then also arrested the Comanche captain who came to San Antonio to complain about it. This was a shocking breach of the peace that had held in Texas for the last half decade, and it sent the Comanches firmly into the revolutionary camp of the Tejanos, Anglos, and Lipanes. So that when Miguel Menchaca crossed the Sabine River back into Texas in August of 1812, at the head of the Tejano contingent of José Bernardo Gutiérrez de Lara's Republican Army of the North, go back to season two for the rest of this, he was able to count on not only Lipan support, but also Comanche and the increasingly Lipan-aligned Tonkawas as well. Which creates this incredible scene in 1812 and 1813, when you have Tejanos, Anglos, Lipanes, Tonkawas, and Comanches all fighting on the same side during the First War of Texas Independence. The Lipanes played a particularly vital role in supplying Menchaca and Gutierrez de Lara's army with buckskin and moccasins and other provisions, and in carrying Gutierrez de Lara's highly effective propaganda throughout the province. The Lipanes were soon fighting and dying alongside this Republican Army of the North. 
300 Lipanes and Tonkawa, under the command of the now 20-year-old Cuelgas de Castro, and another rising Lipan captain from South Texas named Flaco, suffered disproportionate losses in the Battle of Rocio in March of 1813. In that battle, they had misunderstood an order and charged early, though with devastating effect. The Republicans ended up carrying the day, and the Spanish royalist governor and his men were captured. Gutierrez de Lara and Menchaca recognized the Lipanes' contributions after the battle with gifts of guns, cash, loot, and with copious praise. The Lipanes then figured just as critically in June in routing the Spanish royalists at the Battle of Alasan Creek, where they fell upon the Spanish rear in a frenzy of killing, horse capturing, and looting. And they rode with Miguel Menchaca on the morning of August 18, 1813, into the final tragic Battle of Medina. Cuelgas de Castro doesn't seem to have been with them that morning. Perhaps he had picked up on the friction in the Republican Army's upper ranks. Days before the battle, a series of political maneuvers had led to the dismissal of the Republican Army's as yet undefeated general, Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara. The Lipanes' friend, Miguel Menchaca, hung around out of loyalty to his men and loyalty to the cause, but he was openly mistrustful of the new commander, a young Spanish nobleman who just never seemed to really understand the spirit of this frontier Republican army of the North. From the start, the Battle of Medina felt disorganized. And when Menchaca died on the field of battle, the Lipanes fled. They retreated back into their hill country homeland, where Captain Chiquito and his son, Cuelgas de Castro, and the rest of their people considered what to do next. They didn't have long to consider, though. In October, just two months after the Battle of Medina, the victorious Spanish royalist general Arredondo made the Lipanes his next target. The Spanish military's mistrust of the Lipan Apaches ran deep, and Arredondo attacked a village of 300 Lipanes and took nearly all their property. In the interim, however, a few surviving Tejanos from Menchaca's old command managed to reestablish contact with the Lipanes, most notably José Francisco Ruiz the highest-ranking Tejano to survive the Battle of Medina and the subject of this podcast last season. In the year or two following the battle, Ruiz had established a particularly close relationship with the Comanches, procuring goods for them in American Louisiana and carrying them out onto the plains. But he had also grown up with Lipan Apaches. He had a Lipan Apache adopted brother in his household, and he seems to have spoken their language some. And so during these years, he developed a great deal of trust with them as well. Through Ruiz, perhaps, the Lipanes began to discuss a radical proposal with their old Comanche rivals, an alliance against the Spanish in Texas, to work together to raid the weakened old conquistadors with the support, Ruiz assured them, of the Tejano population of the state. In 1816, Captain Chiquito's band of San Antonio Lipanes entered into an alliance with the Comanches. By 1818, the Spanish governor would be writing that, quote, not a single day passes without them making some depredation or attack, end quote. He estimated that the Lipanes numbered 25,000 and the Comanches 18,000. He was off by about 10x or more for the Lipanes and probably 4 to 5x for the Comanches, but it's a testament to how overpowered he felt. Cuelgas de Castro, during these years, rose to become a captain in his own right, alongside his aging father, and alongside Captains Flaco and Pocarropa from South Texas. And there's a fascinating continuity here with these three, Cuelgas de Castro, Flaco, and Pocarropa, 
because they were all direct descendants of Captains Chico, Casablanca, and perhaps even El Lumen, the seer that you might recall from some of the previous episodes. And in 1818, this new generation was consolidating Lipan power and joining with Comanches and sacking sitios like Refurio and Victoria. In 1819, they even infiltrated San Antonio and rounded up the presidial horse herd, something that Lipan Apaches hadn't done for almost a century by that point. In 1821, the news arrived that the war with Spain was over and that the Mexicans had triumphed. But nothing changed overnight in Texas. In fact, most of the old Spanish officers garrisoned in Texas retained their posts and their distrust of the Lipanes even in this newly independent Mexican government. All of which just heightened the Lipanes' confusion when it came to figuring out who was really speaking for the Spanish or the Mexicans or whoever they claimed they were now. It took José Francisco Ruiz reaching out to them for them to agree to come to the table in April of 1822. Lipanes had come to trust Ruiz. Ruiz had suffered like they had from Spanish oppression. He'd been in exile in Louisiana for nine years by this point, and even now that Mexico had won its independence, Ruiz's pardon, his pardon for fighting on behalf of the side that had theoretically won the War of Mexican Independence, was being withheld by vengeful Spanish officers on the condition that he must first negotiate a definitive peace with the Lipanes and the Comanches who he had arrayed against the Spanish for so many of the previous nine years. Ruiz showed his appreciation for Lipan power and his knowledge of their lands by proposing to meet them near their sacred site of El Remolino in northern Coahuila, in the modern Mexican town of Zaragoza, Coahuila. When he finally sat down with Cuelgas de Castro, representing the so-called lower Lipanes from around San Antonio, and Pocarropa, representing the upper Lipanes, who now ranged all up and down the Rio Grande, on April 3, 1822, Ruiz assured them that it was a new day in North America. Instead of the old Spanish model, which recognized only quote-unquote reduced Indians and quote-unquote barbarous Indians, all were equal in this new Mexican nation. They were equal, and yet the Lipanes' sovereignty and their identity would remain undiminished. The new Mexican nation, particularly under the still-to-come Constitution of 1824, was committed to testing the limits of shared sovereignty. Federalism, as they would call it in their European languages, yet really, it was just a European version of the old Native American ideal that sovereignty doesn't have to be unitary, and it doesn't have to be hierarchical, recognizing the other types of bonds like kinship and compadrazgo, etc., that tie people together, rather than just the relationship of master to subject. Everything about Ruiz's words, about his description of this new Mexican nation, seemed relatable to Cuelgas de Castro and Pocarropa and the other Lipanes, intuitive even. It was cute, in a way, that these settlers thought they were inventing this notion out of thin air, but regardless of where they were getting it from, it promised a more peaceful, prosperous future for everyone involved. And so Cuelgas de Castro and Pocarropa accepted Ruiz's invitation to Mexico City to go formalize this new peace. Ruiz's Comanche allies did too. And you can go listen to my episode in the previous season on the so-called impossible peace if you want to learn more about this. But by the end of 1822, the chief captains of both the Lipanes and the Comanches were in Mexico City, signing treaties with, and in the cases of the Comanches at least, meeting with the new Mexican emperor Agustin Iturbide. The Lipanes 
may even have arrived in time to have seen his coronation. And yet the great Lipan alliance makers in particular extracted terms from the new Mexican government that reflected the power they held over the region. It's an unparalleled thing, really, that even after 200 years of facing down colonial and native powers, the Lipanes heartland, ranging from South Texas to northern Coahuila to the Trans-Pecos and north all the way to Colorado even, remained largely undiminished and geographically well out of proportion to their small numbers. In exchange for returning Spanish captives, the new Mexican nation would formally recognize the Lipanes' rights to their pasture lands. But the Lipanes wanted it even clearer than that, however. And so, the Mexican government promised that they would, quote, let the Lipan tribes have whatever they need for their families and for war to defend themselves against their enemies, end quote. The Mexican government also promised to serve as guarantor of the almost decade-long Lipan-Comanche peace and to resume making the old Spanish rent payments. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, the Lipanes were given rights to round up any and all wild horses in Texas. It was the formalization of the long-asserted Lipan claim to all the horses of the Texas Plains, who were, after all, created in the beginning just for them, and over whom no other people, native or settler, could claim the same level of kinship and mastery. Other Native Americans got wind of the generous terms being offered by this new Mexican nation. In contrast to the United States of Eastern North America, which wouldn't recognize Native Americans as citizens until 1924, the Mexican government was promising actual citizenship and formal, if very slow-moving, recognition of these natives' rights to land. Under increasing pressure from the United States' Indian removal policies, Native peoples from east of the Mississippi began migrating into Mexican Texas. From Michigan, from Ohio, from Georgia and Tennessee, almost 10,000 of these so-called immigrant Indians entered Texas during the 1820s. In many cases, the arrival of these immigrant Indians into East Texas set them at odds with the resident Caddoan speakers of the region, the Texas, the Wichitas, the Wacos, and others who were the Lipanes' old East Texas rivals. And the truth was, Mexican officials seemed to favor these new immigrants over the settled East Texas native communities, presumably because they could extract more concessions from the newcomers in exchange for giving them land in East Texas. And some of these immigrant Indians, like the Shawnee, for example, took a particular dislike to the Comanches as well and began to fight with them whenever they could. It all seemed to be playing to the Lipanes' advantage, distracting their old rivals and allowing Lipan alliance makers to play the newcomers off the old-timers. As had happened many times before in the past, this moment of Lipan power grew other native peoples to them. Indeed, despite having endured at least four major epidemics in 1750, 1764, 1780, and 1798, there's reason to believe that the Lipan population might have actually increased slightly during this period, in stark contrast to the demographic trends elsewhere in Native America. Part, this may have come from cultural absorption. We've already mentioned the Lipanes' strong bonds with the Tonkawas by this point, who often lived side by side with the Lipanes by the 1820s. The badly depleted Karankawas also came into their orbit around this time. As early as 1816, they're documented making pilgrimages to the Lipan-controlled peyote gardens. The Lipanes also directed their alliance-making efforts toward the recovering Tejano urban centers. 
Captain Pocarropa became particularly close to the leadership of Laredo. And after the death of his father, Captain Chiquito, in 1821, Cuelgas de Castro became a regular presence in San Antonio. Like many Lipanes by this point in time, Cuelgas spoke, quote, quite good Spanish, end quote, and also, quote, was the easiest chief for the military commanders of the eastern interior provinces to communicate with, both for lodging complaints against crimes and for seeing that the criminals are punished for their misdeeds, end quote. There was, of course, yet another new entrant on the scene that we've already alluded to. But starting in 1823 and 1824, Anglo-Americans started settling in East Texas with Stephen F. Austin. Cuelgas de Castro and Flaco had actively sought out Stephen F. Austin as early as 1821 and quickly realized a natural alignment of interests. Picturing it again like a checkerboard, the Lipanes were one square removed from the East Texas Indians who surrounded Austin's new colony. And Austin's colonists brought with them a deep-seated Anglo discomfort about any Indians living in their immediate proximity. As early as 1826, Guelgas and Flaco were riding with Austin's colonists against Caddoan-speaking Wacos and Wichitas, and again in an even larger campaign in 1829. By 1831, the Lipanes' old East Texas Caddoan-speaking rivals, with whom they had warred for almost three centuries, were badly beaten down by the demographic pressures converging on them from all sides. Which didn't mean that all of the Lipanes' old rivalries had been put to bed. Despite a decade of collaboration, in 1824, a bout of violence broke out between Lipanes and Comanches. In this instance, however, the Lipanes would call on and receive Mexican aid against the Comanche violence of the 1820s. In 1826, Cuelgas de Castro was actually commissioned a lieutenant colonel in the Mexican army for his effectiveness against the Comanches in several campaigns, and Pocarropa was also given an officer's commission. And in July 1827, a joint Mexican-Lipan force defeated a large contingent of Comanches who sued for peace, a peace negotiated with the help of José Francisco Ruiz. But in some ways, the Lipan-Comanche rivalry starts to take on a different flavor from this point forward. Generations of contact, of shared geography and of converging lifestyles, and perhaps some early-stage peyote diplomacy, had started to weave kinship bonds into the tapestry of the old Lipan-Comanche enmity. By 1828, the Lipanes and Comanches were regularly being written about as at peace with each other and with Mexican officials. But there was something increasingly uncomfortable for Lipan captains like Cuelgas de Castro and Pocarropa and Flaco and all the other Lipanes in dealing with the Mexican government. In part, it was the presence of so many former Spanish royalists in the Army Officer Corps, with all of their centuries-old resentments of Apache power. But more fundamentally, there was just a tension with promise of shared sovereignty in a European-style nation-state. Cuelgas de Castro, Pocarropa, and Flaco and others were beginning to feel like this supposedly federal republic still seemed to believe deep down that even in a system of shared sovereignty, the sovereignty of the Europeans in the center of the nation-state needed to be just a little bit more supreme. Even the supposed rule of law promised to the Lipanes as citizens under the Constitution of 1824 began to seem like something that was only ever wielded against them. Cuelgas, for example, couldn't help but notice how rarely Mexicans were actually punished 
for the same crimes that he was obligated to turn his people over for. As early as 1824, Mexican officers took Cuelgas de Castro to task for supposed Lipan horse raids in Coahuila, even as Mexicans had been rounding up his wild horses in Texas for the previous three years, in defiance of the Treaty of 1822 that said that those Texas horses were the property of the Lipanes. It sure didn't seem like Lipanes were really and truly full citizens under the law, or that sovereignty was being shared at all. It seemed like the perpetuance and survival of that central sovereign was far more sacrosanct than the people who had invested it with that sovereignty, and that all manner of injustice, violence, and even genocide could be justified if done in the name of its survival. On the next episode of Lipan Apocalypse. Thank you for listening. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. The intro and outro music is from the White Mountain Apache Crown Dancers. You can find them on YouTube. Special thanks this season to my Lipan friends, Bernard Barcena, Lucille Contreras, Richard Gonzalez, Margot Moreno, and Gary Perez. I hope I'm doing your story justice. And make sure to check out Lucille's Texas Tribal Buffalo Project online and fill out her Texas Indigenous Data Sovereignty Study. For more information about the Lipan Apaches, check out the books by Thomas Britton, Jose Medina Gonzalez Davila, Nancy McGowan Minor, and Sherry Robinson. Also, check out the doctoral thesis of Enrique Maistas and the Texas Observer article by Dylan Bedour. Lastly, go to Gorka Alonso's website, apacheria.es. For more information on my other projects, you can go to brandonseal.com. <laughs>